Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we bring you a story about the Continental Basketball Association, or the CBA. This league had a very important role in the development of basketball players and coaches for over 60 years. While the NBA has been the premier basketball league in America since 1948, the CBA provided support to make that happen. The CBA was founded in 1946, the same year that the NBA was founded. And by the way, the NBA went by a different name for its first three seasons. It was called the BAA, or Basketball Association of America. But it all traces its history back to 1946. Originally, The CBA was called the Eastern Pennsylvania Basketball League and was organized on April 23, 1946. This was two months before the NBA was founded, which is why the CBA called itself the oldest professional basketball league in America. That very first season, the league featured six teams. Five of them were located in Pennsylvania and the sixth team was in New York. But even that sixth team moved to Pennsylvania halfway through the season as it was just easier for traveling purposes to be near the other five teams. And remember, this was in the day before plane travel. These teams would typically travel by train or bus. Geographical proximity was key to the success of these leagues to help keep costs down. Those first six cities were Wilkes-Barre, Hazleton, Allentown, Lancaster, Reading, and Pottsville. By 1948, the league renamed itself just the Eastern Basketball League as they were expanding with new teams in New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, and Massachusetts. As the 1940s became the 1950s, it was obvious that the NBA had taken the lead as the top league in the country. The Eastern League would be the second best league, and that was okay. There was a place for a secondary league for basketball. After all, baseball used a similar model. The major leagues were not the only leagues in America. They had AAA, which was below the majors. Then they had AA that was below that. And finally, single A below that. If you were a baseball fan, then I want you to know that I am fully aware that there is high A and a low A distinction. But for the purposes of this episode, I will just leave it as single A and move on. The Eastern League figured that they could keep the league right below the NBA where they could still provide an exciting brand of basketball and also allow players and coaches to develop with the hopes of still making it to the NBA. During the 1950s and 1960s, many NBA teams had an unwritten rule about how many black players they could have on the team, everyone except the Celtics. Red Arbach, who ran the Boston Celtics, did not care what anybody's skin color was. He just wanted to win and would sign anyone who could help the team win some games. But for the other teams, there was an unwritten rule about not having more than two black players. 
The result was that there were a large number of black players who had outperformed their white counterparts during tryouts, but were still cut because the teams were worried about having too many black players. That is where the Eastern League came in. They did not care who you were. If you could play basketball, there was a place for you in their league. For a league that was secondary to the NBA, it featured a lot of players with legitimate NBA talent. Over time, the league continued to grow with teams in cities like Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Pensacola, Florida, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Charleston, West Virginia, and Rochester, Minnesota, and the like. By the 1970s, the league had rebranded as the CBA and entered into a handshake agreement with the NBA. By the 1970s, most NBA teams carried 12 players on the team. So you had five starters, five backups, and two extra players in case a couple of players got injured. This helped ensure that you always had at least 10 healthy players at any given moment. But what happened if an NBA team found itself with fewer than 10 healthy players? That is when they turned to the CBA. Under this agreement, which became formalized in 1980, an NBA team could sign any player from the CBA to a 10-day contract. In addition to paying the player the NBA minimum salary prorated for those 10 days, the NBA team would also compensate the CBA team for taking what was usually their best player. With this formal agreement in place, the CBA became the official development league for the NBA. And once that 10-day contract was over, the NBA team could sign that player to a second 10-day contract depending on how many of the regular players on the team were healthy. If the CBA player completed a second 10-day contract, then the NBA team had to make a decision. It was not allowed to sign the player to a third 10-day contract. The NBA team had to either send the player back to their CBA team or keep him for the rest of the season. For the players, it was what they referred to as getting the call. Getting the call meant that you were going to get an opportunity to spend a week and a half with an NBA team and hopefully impress them enough for them to keep you long term. Every player in the CBA was playing in hopes of getting the call. The CBA was not a place where you got rich or famous. You played in small gyms, in small towns, often traveling by van on all night road trips to get to the next game. It was as unglamorous as professional basketball got but the players and coaches did it hoping to get the call. During the 1980s, many former CBA players found their way onto NBA rosters. There were players like Tim Legler, Mario Eli, Tony Campbell, Scott Brooks, and John Starks, who went on to very successful NBA careers. You also had coaches from the CBA make it as NBA head coaches like Bill Musselman, George Carl, and Phil Jackson, who won 11 NBA championships as a head coach. Back in their CBA days, both Musselman and Jackson would lead the Albany Patroons to CBA championships. The CBA was a good league that featured some really great talent. But if I were to describe the players as a whole, I would say that they were late bloomers. That happens sometimes. Not everyone is ready for the NBA at the age of 18 or 19 like Kobe or LeBron or Zion Williamson. For some players and even some coaches, it takes a little longer to develop their skills to become NBA ready. And that's okay. Well, this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with a very unusual point system that the CBA used to keep track of the standings. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. 
Welcome back and let us continue with the story of the CBA and their unusual point system for keeping track of the standings. During the 1980s, the CBA went to a seven-point system for determining the league standings. Instead of wins and losses like everybody else did, the system worked like this. There were seven league standing points available for each game. There was one point awarded for whichever team won each quarter of the game, and then three points for the overall winner of the game. For example, a team could be down by 40 points going into the fourth quarter, but if they could outscore the opponent for just that fourth quarter, they could still salvage one point in the standings. At first glance, it seemed really unusual for a coach to call a timeout with only seconds left in a quarter to drop a final play. But what was often the case was that the team was trying to win the quarter and get that point in the standings. The team had to constantly track two different scores. They had to track the overall game score, but they also had to track the scoring by quarter. The CBA also had a no foul out rule. No matter how many fouls a player received, they would not foul out of the game. However, once an individual player reached seven fouls or more, the opponent would be awarded an extra free throw. So, an and one became an and two. If the player missed the shot, he would shoot three free throws. If it was a non-shooting foul, the player that was fouled would shoot one free throw and then the team would maintain possession. As you can imagine, this was a league where the players played mostly because they loved the game and were not quite ready to quit playing. They wanted to hang on to that NBA dream. During the 1980s, nearly 90% of the players in the CBA had attended at least one NBA training camp. They all felt like they were close to that NBA dream. They all believed that they just needed the right situation to live the good life of an average NBA player. But the CBA never had any illusions about their place in the basketball world. They knew that they were a stepping stone to bigger things, which means that there was heavy turnover. Every team had a radically different roster from year to year. Very rarely did anyone play for the same CBA team more than two years in a row. Every season was a search for the best situation for the players because they wanted to have the best chance of making it to the NBA. But then, in 1999, something happened that proved to be the end of the league. An investment group led by Hall of Famer Isaiah Thomas purchased the entire league, including every single team, for $10 million. Isaiah Thomas saw an opportunity to bring the entire league under a single owner for centralized control and hopefully a better overall product. One of Isaiah's first decisions was to cut player salaries by 30%. Obviously, this was not a popular move. The players did not make that much to begin with. It was very common for CBA players to rent apartments in groups of three or four players to keep costs down during the season. Most could barely afford anything more expensive than fast food meals during the season. As I mentioned before, playing in the CBA was not a glamorous lifestyle. But Isaiah did not know what else to do. He had to reduce the league's overhead quickly and player salaries were an easy way to do that. Unfortunately for the players, they did not have a players union or a collective bargaining agreement that they could use to fight back. They had to take it or leave it. For the CBA, debts were mounting and player salaries were the single largest item in the league's budget. At the same time, the NBA had decided that they wanted to own and control their own development league. They wanted to keep everything in the NBA family. Now this is where things really went bad. The NBA figured that the quickest way to start their own development league was to buy the entire CBA and bring it under NBA ownership. 
they approached Isaiah and offered $11 million. That's $1 million more than what Isaiah paid for the league just one year earlier. But to everyone's astonishment, Isaiah said no. I'm not sure what he was thinking. He has never really explained that decision. But once he said no, the NBA canceled its agreement with the CBA for signing CBA players and they immediately announced that they were going to launch their own development league with six teams for that first season. That means that the NBA was creating 60 new roster spots for development players. So where do you think most of the CBA players were going to play that following season? Would they stay in the CBA with no chance of signing with an NBA team? Or play in the NBA's development league and have direct access to NBA opportunities? That's right. The CBA's best players and coaches all moved over to the NBA development league. It was an incredible loss of talent for the CBA. Overnight, the value of the CBA plummeted. At that point, Isaiah would have been lucky to sell the whole thing for $1 million. Again, it was a very bad decision on the part of Isaiah Thomas. He had no leverage in negotiations with the NBA. The NBA had deep pockets and could just start their own rival league if Isaiah refused their offer. Business schools around the country should use this example as a case study of what not to do in negotiating a sale. But then, in an even weirder twist, Isaiah was offered the head coaching job for the Indiana Pacers. But in order to take that job, he would have to sell the CBA. He could not find a buyer, so he placed the league into a blind trust and left for the NBA. A blind trust basically means that the CBA would continue to exist, but without a human owner. The owner was literally a piece of paper. With this new reality, the CBA did not even last one year. Their debts continued to mount, and they declared bankruptcy and ceased operations completely. Some of those previous owners were able to buy back their teams for just $1, and then took their teams to an even lower league called the International Basketball League. But after a couple of years, that league also folded. But the league had its place and served a great purpose. As far as basketball is concerned, during the 1988-89 NBA season, there were 54 players in the NBA who had previously played in the CBA. That came to 15% of the NBA's players with CBA experience. The CBA was a second chance for players who were cut by NBA teams. It gave them a chance to develop their skills and improve their overall game in hopes of making it to the NBA. As I mentioned earlier, not everyone can achieve NBA-level skills at the age of 18 like Kobe Bryant or LeBron James. For some guys, it takes until they're 22 or 23 or even 24 to develop their skills to the point that they can have a successful NBA career. Today, the NBA's development league called the G League had 24 teams as of 2020 and it continues to grow in adding new teams every year. And it provides opportunities for late bloomers to continue working toward a career in the NBA. The CBA used to be that league. In fact, the CBA could have still been that league. But Isaiah Thomas killed the league with some really bad decision making. So, do not knock those lower leagues. There is some really good basketball being played there. Also, you never know which of these players is going to become an NBA star. Well, that's our story for today. Come back next week when we profile one of the early basketball stars, Dutch Denner. He played in the 1920s and was considered in his day one of the greatest players the game has ever produced. 
That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go ahead and give us a rating and a review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There, you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.